Hey guys, Dave Chang here. Just want to talk about the noodles from Momofuku. You can get them at Target, at Whole Foods. You can also buy them directly from shop.momofuku. Check out Cook Any Day for the amazing bowls that I cook every meal, every day with legitimately. I will say, will change your entire culinary game at home. Been drinking a tremendous amount of Cometeer with coconut water uh, defrosted every day. These are things I do every day. And uh, the beer that we work with Athletic Brew is out called Athletic Light. Go check that out. Today, we have John Jay on as our guest. You may not be familiar with the name John Jay. He does sound like one of our founding fathers, but I'm sure you have bought or watched something he's been a part of behind the scenes. One of the most influential people in culture. I guarantee you are familiar with the things that he's worked on. And now on to the show. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Change Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Dome Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always. Um, John Jay is awesome. I could talk to him for hours and hours and hours because I find him to be an OG. He really is. And uh, one of the things we talk about is travel. He says something extremely important, that travel is a humbling experience. I don't know if a lot of people understand what that is. Um, to go to a country where you don't speak the language, that you don't have access to the things you may normally have uh, in your home country, not everybody does it. A lot of people are scared to do it. I have complete understanding and sympathy why somebody might not want to do that, but I can't recommend it enough. It's something that I always have to constantly do to remind myself to be, to be grateful for the opportunities and, and the privileges that I have. But I'm really looking forward to traveling again. I think for a while I was extremely dour and down on it. All you have to do is hear some of the podcasts where I said, I don't want to go to Italy for this wedding. I'm just trying to be not so depressed about these things because I need to get out of my, my shell in a lot of different ways. The shell that I've built for myself um, the past two and a half plus years. So I'm looking forward. I don't speak an Italian. <laughs> I don't speak any Italian other than fake uh, food Italian. But for me, I think I got a plan with grace, how do we go to a place wherever it is? I think we want to go to, I won't say yet, because we're going to start planning a, a few places, start planning it now because it's probably a year or two or three years out. But I think it's a good reminder for me to travel. If you go to Asia, my friends that would go to Tokyo and would never even contemplate going to Seoul, Korea or Busan or Jeju are now going now. And they want to go. And I think that's a confluence of a lot of things. One is music that's out there. I think BTS has changed a lot of things. The TV, clearly Squid Game. And this influx of Korean restaurants that are happening in New York. There's this bonanza of restaurants. I can't wait to check them all out. But in every part of culture, it seems, at least from Americans that are going to travel abroad, from a Korean perspective, this is why having your culture out there changes the reality of how you are seen. And I am now getting more and more uh, requests for where to eat in Korea. I don't know. I asked Lucia Cho uh, of Gaon. Um, I asked my other friends where to go, but it's now happening. And I'm going to bet a tremendous amount of money that Seoul, Korea becomes one of the most traveled places in Asia. That's besides going to Thailand and Vietnam and Tokyo, 
I think a lot of people are going to start to visit Korea. And I will say the last time I was there when I was doing the Olympics for NBC, I was shocked because I hadn't been in a few years, uh, how more accepting it was to be a Westerner, a dramatic shift. There are more signs in English. There are people that are not as xenophobic. I have always felt that Korea was a lot more xenophobic as a culture than other Asian countries. And it's just changed. So I think Korea is going to be all the rage if it hasn't already been. But travel there and people are going to know more about the food. And Seoul restaurants are going to be, I don't know if it'll ever be in the same rarefied era as Japan, but I hope it I hope it will be because all of that changes how things are seen here in America. So I'm beyond thrilled about that. But I also can't wait to get back to Japan. People seem to ask, why do you care about Japanese culture? It is very important in my family's history, Japanese culture. Uh, Many, many of my family members were essentially Japanese. And if you study the history, so I have a a conflicted feeling. I have conflicted feelings. Uh, It's not self-loathing or self-hatred, but I sometimes feel more at home in Japan than I do in Korea. And that's just the God honest truth. I don't know how to explain that, but I just do. And maybe because when I go to Korea, I feel like I'm a gyopo, which I am, a foreign-born. And in Japan, I just already know that I'm not Japanese, so I don't have that issue. But I can't wait to visit Japan. I can't wait to visit Korea. I do know I want to send my go with my family and visit some of Grace's relatives in Korea. But uh, (laughs) there's a, a giant uptick in Korean requests. That all I will say. And I know that's also happening from the media. So you're going to start seeing this in all the food magazines, all the travel magazines, where to eat in Korea. If that hasn't happened already, it's bound to happen. It's going to be nonstop and incessant. That I promise. And this is a good thing. You know, and, and you're going to hear John talk about unlearning to learn again. And I think that's where I'm at right now. I need to remind myself to unlearn to learn again, which led me to briefly bring up one of my favorite people in the world, Juan Marie Arzac of Arzac and San Sebastian. If you've heard about him before on this podcast, it's because he is extremely influential in modern cooking. What he did was modernize Spanish cuisine, Basque cuisine in a way that had not been done because it was so reliant upon French gastronomy as an identity. And Juan Marie allowed, you know, people like Ferran and Andoni and all the amazing chefs that Spain has produced to do what they do. And his daughter, who is the co-chef, Elena, is just a wonderful, amazing, one of the best chefs out there. I love San Sebastian. It's another place I would want to visit soon. The reason I bring up Juan Marie is the idea of unlearning to learn again is very reminiscent of Juan Marie's philosophy of looking at everything with a child's eye. And every day I'm trying to remind myself that. My whole goal is to be more grateful and to be less jaded and be less of an asshole in general and be more appreciative of things. And I think part of that, again, is my mom passing away. I'm thinking about these things a lot more because she never complained about anything. And I'm glad that the Discord community, I'm glad that my friends, I'm glad that people around me have said, hey, is everything okay? And I just got to be honest, I'm in a process of trying to reevaluate some things and, and be more less jaded. I'm just becoming so jaded. So I'm working on that, guys. And I think talking to John Jay is one reason. It was almost like open therapy a little bit because I want to be reminded about how to think about things in a work perspective or just create a perspective and be excited about it. And uh, it's just a state of mind. It really is. But he is just bursting at the seams with creativity. I love that. He is thirsty for what's around the corner. If you listen to the podcast I did with Christina Tosi, for a long time, when, my, when I was in my mid to late 20s and I was just so obsessed with success and survival and competitive with everything, I had a list of the greatest dishes ever made by the greatest chefs ever. And usually I, they had three to five dishes that changed the game for themselves and at times gastronomy. I don't know where this list has gone. I can't believe I even made a spreadsheet back in the day. It's probably on an old Dell computer somewhere. But I found that a lot of these dishes were made around 27 to 35. And I, I just was so focused on that. So I, I tried to maximize everything I could at that age, thinking that when you're done, you're done. You're, you, you had given up all creative endeavors because you're just going to make elevator music as you get older. And I've learned that is just so dumb. It was so stupid. Yes, I think there's a higher correlation that the older you get, the less creative you are, the less ambitious you are. But that isn't because you're not creative. 
it is a state of mind. I think it's twofold. One reason why things get a little bit more difficult to be creative when you're older is you're just not spending the time engaging with the world like you used to do because you didn't have that many responsibilities. The older you get, you tend to have more responsibilities. You have to be less selfish. It's not just, it's not a muscle that atrophies into nothing. And second, I think that if you are creative, Sometimes the pain and suffering of failure starts to add up and you start to build scar tissue and you want the path more traveled, not less traveled, just because it's a little bit easier. That pain and suffering is so crucial to to creativity, but is it necessary? Is it necessarily better? I don't know. I've had this conversation with Dave Cho quite a bit. You know, I think both of us have always felt that when you're younger and dumb, that was when you're going to make the best art. A starving artist is going to make the best art. A struggling artist is going to make the best art because of the necessity. I think that is true, but multiple truths are there as well. So I, 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 I'm so happy to have John on this podcast to remind me that you can be extremely creative. And even if your creative juices maybe not be the same, You can change your game, much like an athlete, much like a basketball player, whether you're Jordan or Kobe Bryant, you change your game as you get older because you can't do the things you used to do when you were younger. And as I get older, as I turn 45 this year, that's where I am now thinking a lot more. And and, uh, I'm excited and I'm terrified for all the things that we got coming up, but that's sort of where I'm at. And I just wanted to share with you guys some of those insights, uh, some of the conversation that you're about to hear with John Jay. Um, he is the creative director of Uniglow, technically the president of Global Creative for Uniglow. He spent a career in journalism, spent 21 years at White and Kennedy. They made the coolest commercials. The, they just were the shit, man. And they still are. And the fact that he has been part of this process and then working with Nike. And now he's at Uniglow beyond cool. So I'm grateful for John Jay and uh, I'll stop talking and let you hear me rap with John Jay. I'm speaking with John Jay, president of Global Creative for Uniglow and its parent company. Many years ago, I found myself on the side of buildings and buses and stuff. This is before John showed up, but big fan of Uniglow. And I wanted to talk to John mainly because I find his career extremely fascinating. Started in journalism, spent 21 years at Wyden and Kennedy, one of the largest independent ad agencies in the world. They do all the cool stuff, uh, all the stuff that Nike had made over the years. Uh, Partnered with my good friend, Andy Ricker. Just lived a fascinating life. And I just don't know that many people, regardless of whoever you are that I know that's had these many lives. And I wanted to just sort of pick his brain and see what's up. So welcome, John. Thank you. And of course, the grass is always greener. I was so intimidated to get this invitation from you. And I said, man, that dude's had an interesting life. He wants to talk to me. (laughs) Well, first of all, you just told me you got back from Tokyo. You haven't been there in two years. Uh, I usually go once a year. I try to at least. And I have not been in in, since I was there right before the pandemic. I haven't been back since. Um, What's been going on there? Well, uh, I actually split time between Tokyo, Portland, and New York. That's my normal schedule. I have offices and I live in all three cities. I had not been to Tokyo for two years. I walked in to my office uh, and all of my Christmas presents were still there. So I spent uh, uh, last Monday, Christmas in my office, opening all these boxes of stuff, you know, corporate gifts and cards from Japanese, you know, uh, companies and so forth. But it was remarkable. I ordered a lot of books, so uh, there were a lot of new books there sitting for me. But uh, Japan is is funny. You know, it's uh, Tokyo's funny. It, it's uh, lacking tourists, obviously, because no one can get in. So the restaurants aren't quite as full and bustling as they used to be. But the action on the street, you know, it's, it's still pretty active. It's still active. Uh, several restaurants that I tried to get into uh, were closed uh, still. Um, so, but it's trying very hard uh, to get back. Of course, it's a, if there's a religion in that city, it's a consumerism, right? And uh, many of the stores are, are bustling and, 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 you know, coming back, coming back strong, actually. I, I can't wait to go back. Um, I do think it's the, 
food capital of the world. And, and there's a lot of people that say, you know, Paris or New York or San Francisco, or the fact is nothing comes remotely close to Tokyo. Yeah. I don't know if you agree with that. No, I agree. And you know, the thing is you can get a great Italian meal and a great French meal and you can get a great hot dog. You know, I'm sure you would appreciate that too, you know? And uh, yeah, and you mentioned my friend Andy Ricker. One of the great days I had with him was he came to Japan and we ate ramen from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. I mean, I was, I was so over ramen by that night, but what a day that was. I mean, people uh, may not realize that a lot of these two, three Michelin star restaurants in Europe, all over Europe, many of the Italian and French ones, uh, there's a high percentage chance that one of the sh- uh, chef de parties or sous chefs or executive sous chefs or chef de cuisine is Japanese. I mean, there's a disproportionate number, at least one Japanese chef. And they come, they spend decades there and they come back and they get the best ingredients still. It, it, nothing has changed. And I, I oftentimes think some of the best European style meals you can have in, in Japan. The one thing I will say that I have a hard time finding in Japan, it doesn't have everything, right? No, doesn't have everything, but it doesn't have great like Thai food either. Right. Yes. And you could argue Mexican too, the way we go for it, you know, and I'll add one to it, David. I struggle even today to have a great breakfast. I mean, you know, eggs running and pancakes dripping and, you know, giant cups of coffee and bacon, you know, all over the place. I can't find that. Yeah. I, you know what? I'm okay with that. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with that because I'd rather eat all the other things for breakfast. Um, yeah, I, 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 if you want an Aussie-style breakfast, then I think you just got to go to Australia because they've yeah. really perfected that Western style right. of breakfast. Right, but, right. Um, there is actually one restaurant I go to that's Aussie for that. So, But like hotel breakfasts in Japan are fantastic. To me, you have it all there too, right? They are. They're a little too prim and proper for me. The eggs are too well designed. The bacon is perfect. Everything's a little, you know, the little glass of orange juice. It's all too sophisticated for me. Um, And it just so happens that I had a conversation um, with Noel and we were just sort of joking. What would we be doing if we didn't do what we were already doing? She said, you'd probably be some creative director somewhere, Dave. And I said, how do you get that kind of job? <laughs> and I said, I don't even know what that is. She's like, well, you do that anyway. Yeah, said, you do. I actually. do. Yeah, you do. And she's like, people really want this position filled with somebody that has a lot of, you know, a lot of times crazy ideas. You happen to have that a lot. Is that true? What is a creative director? Basically, it's someone that is, you know, touches everything and puts the kind of like puts the green light on, you know, which direction to go. It's not just aesthetics. It's not just creative for creative sake. A lot of it has to do with strategy and making sure that you're taking your team down the right path because uh, in our business, we are trying to solve a problem. It, 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 uh, invariably, it's a business problem. And so there are risks involved and there are, you know, the idea that there are uh, boundaries that you have to work in. I need to be able to explain and articulate and help to create what those boundaries are then I can unleash the creativity within those boundaries. Um, so that's part of being a creative director. But then on the other part is, for me anyway, is to be connected to culture. This is what you do so well. So I, you know, I, I, I don't like it when creative people go to uh, strategy people or research people and just say, uh, tell me what's happening in music these days. No, no, dude, that, that's your job to understand what's happening in music. So uh, it's a pretty big role. Many people, you know, I used to say back in the 90s, I used to say to Calvin Klein, I think you're the greatest creative director of our era because he was not only making the clothes, but he was so connected to popular culture and everything from Marky Mark uh, to the underwear ads. He was connected to everything. And I often wondered, how do you do that? You're running this multi, you know, whatever, huge platform, a company, a fashion company. And I learned something from him that I continue to do today. And I bet you do this too. Uh, I surround myself with multi-skilled, multi-talented young people. So at one point when I opened Wine and Kennedy Tokyo, although they were my assistant or an account director or something else, they were also DJs. So at any given week, I had three DJs spinning in, in the city of Tokyo. And on a Monday, those who could uh, would be willing, I say, by Tuesday morning or Monday night, can you write me a report? 
you were at Club Yellow till 4 a.m. On, on Saturday night. What did you see? What music struck you? Who was responding to what? And they were completely, constantly feeding me this information because I couldn't be everywhere and I could, you know, all the time. And so surrounding myself with interesting people was, is uh, one of the things I try to build offices around. Yeah, I, I try to do the same. Not just interesting people, people that are smarter, <laughs> smarter than me too. Um, but John, I got. I have to wonder. It sounds to me what you just said also seems to be a CEO role, CEO role as well, right? Is you is, you would is, think right? What's the you difference? You would think, there? but there's a lot of CEOs, and I talk about this a lot, who are disconnected to culture, disconnected to the street, disconnected to young people because they're way up there in the ivory tower. And you know, and a lot of that, um, that disconnection comes from people who only wanna say what they wanna hear, and they bring information that they wanna hear, and they don't bring arguments or debates and so forth, and they're not out onto the street. I, I really believe it's important. The, there was a, 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 you may know him too, uh, my great friend, uh, Mark Parker, who was the CEO of, of Nike. He and I were all over the streets, all over places, all over the world. Uh, and he was in the thick of it. So I, you're right, CEOs shouldn't do that. But I think there's a misnomer that because you have the internet and you can Google stuff, that somehow that's knowledge. That isn't. And I always would hear stories about Mark Parker just going incognito to anywhere, everywhere, and just collecting information, just talking yeah, to people. Very much, very much. And I, sometimes I'd be right on his heels, riding on his coattails. So is that what you saw when you were working with White and Kennedy and you started working with Nike that something was missing in their campaigns? No, no. Well, first of all, David, I was, I was in New York. And remember, I was there at the end of the glory years of Bloomingdale's. When Bloomingdale's was an entity, was an icon in American retailing and so forth. And uh, I, I, I was nice and comfortable in New York City. I'd spent a lot of time, you know, uh, put, earning my stripes in New York City and the idea of going to Portland, Oregon, which so many people said, what? I, you know, and in fact, uh, I moved to Portland without ever visiting it, without yeah. going to the office, without ever, because New Yorkers do this. New York's put an asterisk against everything. Oh, it has to have museums. It has to have good theater. It has to have good restaurants. No, if the brief to myself was go where you can make the greatest creative work of your life, then go there. Don't put an asterisk next to it. So I went there, sight unseen, because of my belief in the work that I was seeing, uh, primarily on, and well, everywhere, but on television. I mean, I would be sitting in New York and I'd see television commercials like Revolution or Spike and Mike. And I look at it and I go, I don't know what that was, but that wasn't a TV commercial. That was something to do with culture. That wasn't just selling me stuff. And that's what they made me interested in going out there. So I was going out there to learn, David. I, I, I wasn't saying I had anything extra to add to them. Well, some people that listen to this podcast, the audience may not be too familiar with White and Kennedy or uh, that time period of what was mm -hmm. happening. What made it so special for you to be like, I got to get out of here and go to a place that I've never been to, the Pacific Northwest. Like, what, what yeah. were they doing? Yeah. Well, of course, it was the Nike work, uh, you know, uh, then uh, it was a golden era and continues to, you know, the relationship is the longest standing, the most amazing relationship. Mind you, a little bit of trivia here. So I had I'd written myself this brief and I had looked at several opportunities, one in London, one in Hollywood at a studio. And it came down to two places I was going to consider. One was from Ralph Lauren, an invitation from Ralph Lauren to join him and stay in New York and and the other one was from Dan White uh, to go to Portland, Oregon. And uh, the, that one came kind of the last second and everything. And I decided to go the, the more challenging route, I thought. You know, staying in New York would be much easier. But just seeing the work then, it was just, it was just extraordinary work that we call advertising, but it was more than that. It, it was, it, it was, it's, it's when culture and marketing and advertising, and, you know, I know it's to some people, they may be, maybe the, 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 the devil, but it's when all of that creativity came together and people had the freedom to express, you know, uh, ideas about culture uh, in mass media. One of the first things you did with Nike was reconnect Nike with the culture of basketball, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We sound, <laughs> 2022, you think about that and clearly I would think to myself, well, that's a no brainer, of course. 
That's that must have always been the case. Mm-hmm. And you're saying it well, wasn't. Well, but specifically, it was about New York City. I arrived on Monday, first day in the office, first day in the office. Um, by the way, on the second day, Dan White said to me, John, I never asked you this, but do you, do you know anything about sports? And here I come out there and I said, dude, I'm from Ohio State. He goes, oh, okay, say no more. Uh, um, so I arrived on Monday, Phil Knight calls him on Thursday. He says, Dan, my son has some issues that he's telling me about our brand. Seems like he's feeling that our brand is losing relevance on the streets of New York. So this is 1993, late October, early November of 93. So he said to Dan, is there anything we can do about this? Can you look into it? And Dan said, well, my friend from John just moved here from New York. Let me talk to him. So what I did was I, I went back to New York. I sent my, my connections, my teams into, in, into New York and really started digging deep into the culture. What is it about Nike? What is it about uh, basketball in particular? Because I knew it was the Mecca of ball. It was the Mecca of basketball. And I knew that there was something much bigger in the culture of basketball than simply NBA or even NCAA. I mean, the streets had a lot to do with the style of ball that you saw in the ABA and what the ABA did to the you know, NBA, all of that flair, all of that street, all of that stuff that we take for granted on the, you know, on Ja Morant, on all that stuff you see today came from that. So I, I knew that there was a history there, but I, I didn't want to propose any advertising without really getting deep into the culture and talking to people firsthand as a creative, not sending executives or sending researchers, but going firsthand, sending my friends and New Yorkers, putting a video camera, taking them into apartments, taking them on the street and feeding me this information immediately so I could get a sense of it. So when do you know that a gut feeling you have needs to be explored more? When do you know that you need to sort of tug on the thread that you see? And how often are you right and how often are you wrong? Well, uh, hopefully I'm more right uh, than wrong many times because I do spend the time up front and in digging into the culture. So I don't pretend, but I don't do, uh, you know, s- superficial stuff looking. You know, I, of course I use the Internet and look, but I really dig deep. I have, you know, over the, over the years, I've created networks of people, friends in different cultures. And I, and, I, and I just happened in London. We had an emergency. I got on the call, six people over the weekend. Tell me exactly what London is going through right now and through your eyes. You're an art representative. You're a chef. You're a whatever. Tell me from your your life, tell me what you're feeling. And that begins the process. And that's when that becomes the seed of us beginning to have the, the, the confidence to even concept about ideas. Because if you don't do that, you start using old formulas that, that, that you think are good. You start doing things that you think were successful in the past. I love that idea. So, I mean, what's the balance though of getting information? Because I, I hate using the word data, but I like to make information, like decisions based on my own eyes. Yeah. Things course. I taste, but yeah, also, yeah, you know, the, I don't go out as much anymore. I'm not as relevant anymore, but I do trust the people in my circle that do go out. And yeah. so I'm just trying to find the balance so I don't get stuck in that ivory tower that you were talking about as well, because I see that same thing happen with comedians. I'm friends with a lot of comedians. They get so famous that they're not as funny anymore Mm -hmm. because they're not talking to people. They're not having that day-to-day existential absurdist things happen anymore. So you've, for for your entire career, have stayed relevant because you're constantly on the ground. I'm still doing this. I'm still doing this. In the old days, I would uh, call someone up and I would say, um, put your video camera on your kitchen table. I'm going to call you at noon tomorrow. Press, press record. And then I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and then send me the tape after we're done. Just put it in a FedEx box and send it to me. Then I would get it the next day and use it with my team. So here's the thing about data and your gut instinct. Of course, that's the most important thing. But a gut instinct has to be educated has to be developed. You just don't, don't, you don't have coming from zero, you know, of course. So data is not really information. Information is not insight. What you're looking for is insight. And without insight, there is no creativity. And without creativity, there is no innovation. So there's a chain reaction there that happens. So the data is important. This is why AI is a little scary, you know, uh, it, 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 because it doesn't, you don't taste it, you know, whatever. So it, 
eventually, and this is something that I'm going through right now during this COVID period, how do I build a team of people who I've got their back? They know I've got their back. They've got my back. I need that to be physical. I need to be physical. You're in a business of brick and mortar. Brick and mortar has never been more important, has never been more important because that human exchange, that human connection, having a meal and looking someone's eyes, you know, uh, that's so important. It's so important. The problem with brick and mortar was that there was too much of it that was bad. That's That was the problem. Well, not only is it the problem, how do you... To be good is too damn hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, lot. yeah. That's true too. Yeah, and I, to be I, original. I, yeah, I yeah. wondered about that equilibrium, right? You, yeah, it's just, it's it's just so hard to have the mean raised at a level where everyone's doing extraordinary work. Just is well, a possibility. My my son would ask the question. Both of them, who both are in the creative business, to say, "Okay, I get. Why do you have to grow?" So that's a question that I'm sure you're wrestling with too. Why? Do I have to grow? You know, Momofuka was a was a gem, a diamond. You know, would I not be satisfied with just that? You know, uh, and so forth. And that's that's the existential question that we all face. You know, as creatives, if we have some sort of success. Well, I feel uh, you wind up philosophizing about the limits of capitalism. Ultimately, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Um, that's a whole other conversation. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. More and more, when I think about all the decisions that I've made, hopefully they've been, I think, more right than wrong, there's a pattern that it has almost always taken a contrarian stance. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's maybe not necessarily intuition. It's just I happen to always find something that is not necessarily relevant. Ask myself, why is it not relevant? Is it not relevant because some idiot made some cultural opinion or stance that has become, you know, truth to a lot of people? Or... Is it an actually amazing idea? It just hasn't been verified yet. So I always joke it's similar to arbitrage, cultural arbitrage, right? I want to take the bets on things. I want a lot of third to fifth to sixth round draft picks because I don't know exactly, but my gut tells me something's here, here, and here. Yeah, yeah. Me doing the work, right? This year it was about kebabs. I want to know a lot more about it to see. I was like, oh. We found out a lot of information. It is absolutely fantastic, but there's a bias of the media to actually accept it for a lot of reasons we don't need to get into. So, you know, if I was going to be a betting person, I'd probably bet on things like that yeah. to come back to the mainstream. So it's always a bet on the mainstream. But when I look at anything I take a bet on at some point in its cultural history, since its inception, whether it's 50 years, five years, 100 years, at some point it was extremely relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then it just rotates out of fashion. Right, and then you can bring it back with a new spin, with a new audience, and so, and so forth. Well, you know, uh, Alan Iverson would call that the crossover, right? You just cross over the culture, you know? Uh, you get them leaning one way, and you bring it back the other way. So, uh, yeah, and I think the other thing is that I always, uh, there's this thing that uh, I've been lucky that people have actually downloaded. Uh, actually, John Maida, the, uh, the technologist artist, uh, helped to uh, spread this around the world. There's this thing on the internet called John Jay's 
10 tips for young designers. And um, one of them is travel as much as you can as, as possible because it's the most humbling experience for you. When you travel, you understand, dude, I don't know jack shit. They are doing things, life so different from what I believed and everything. It is humbling. How, and, and, and from that, I developed kind of this mantra for the opening of these uh, global labs for, for Uniqlo. The first thing I share with any new recruit or any interview be ready to unlearn to learn again. You've got to unlearn all that stuff that you think is true in order to learn again. And this is especially true for creative people. And I hate to say I'm a proud American, of course, but also for Americans. We just think we know the answer for everything, you know, and, and, and you should learn quickly. There's another side. There's, you know, there's a flip side to everything. And so we, there are many truths out there. So my job is to go up there and experience as many of those truths as possible and then put them together in a new recipe like you would to surprise the world. I find this to be fascinating. This is why I wanted to talk to you because you've done this in a variety of industries over many years, extremely distinguished career. So rarely do you get to meet somebody that's been the best in their class for so long uh, has anything changed in this philosophy of yours? Well, you have to remember, uh, David, I didn't speak English until I was six years old. So I learned English by, I sent, I don't know if you saw it, but there's a picture of a Chinese laundry where I grew up. I sent that to uh, Chris. That's where I grew up. And I didn't speak English. So I would watch TV commercials and go outside and then recognize the car brands as they drove by. So I'd say, oh, that's a Chevrolet, Dad. That's a Chrysler. And then pretty soon I got deeper. That's a Chevrolet Bel Air, or that's a Chevrolet Biscayne, you know, and so forth. That's how I learned. So this branding stuff came, became my, before I knew what branding was, that was the way I learned English. So I come from super, super, super humble beginnings, really humble. Uh, and, and so that thirst, that, that, you know, I had to be curious in order to survive. I, I had to find a new way, you know. My parents, you know, I, uh, you know, I travel in some fancy, fancy, you know, groups sometimes. And back in the day, I used to always be in Paris, and I still am, you know, with very exclusive and elite fashion people. And I would say things like, you know, I come from a family of clothes too. And they said, oh, really? What, you know, da -da, textiles or whatever? And I said, no, 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 no. I was washing them. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't making them, I was washing them, you know? And so to this day, David, if you want a shirt pressed or iron, dude, bring it to me. I can do it. <laughs> My goodness. I mean, this idea of looking at the world with fresh eyes is something I've heard from somebody uh, I, I have so much respect for. And you may have been to his restaurant, Juan Marie Arzac, Arzac restaurant in San Sebastian. And his sort of prevailing life philosophy. He's the, sort of the godfather of modern Spanish cuisine, separated from its French roots. Mm -hmm. um, he says to always look at everything with the child's eye. And mm -hmm. if you go to his office or his home, it's filled with toys. To, as a reminder, he's like, oh, I need to always be humble, to always look at everything with a relative perspective and to ask questions because you never know who the master is on the other side. And I can always right. be learning. And every time I'm with him, he always wanted to know about umami, about how to make kimchi, how to make soy sauce. This guy is a master of his craft. Right. 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 And never once do I ever feel like I'm speaking to somebody like that. I feel like I'm speaking to the student, which is right. Right. always screws me up. Right. So part of my journey is how do I become less jaded? To remind right. yourself, right? The whole idea of you're saying you need to unlearn something yeah. is is um is not only just difficult to do, but the older you get, yeah. and you've done this for so long, I found how I become more misanthropic, more jaded, more mm -hmm. full of bile and vitriol mm -hmm. about the world, <laughs> especially because if you travel, right? right you right. see just how fucked everything is or right. how, you know, I, I'll never forget when I go to a country and I see somebody working extremely hard and I think to myself, oh my gosh, there's no upward mobility for this person, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. on and so forth, or just anything. I find that the trying to not be jaded is a full-time job. Well, I do have another side. Um, uh, I do have an opportunity to work with um, 
underprivileged kids, at-risk kids. I do work with, you know, young people of color. Is one of my big things that I'm working on right now uh, is with a group of people, uh, uh, academics and uh, investors, and they've asked me this bold question. Uh, John, could you join our team to rethink what education is? And I said, well, yeah, that's kind of big, isn't it? You know, and so forth. But I enjoy the idea that they even had the, the, the gall, the, the balls to ask someone like me. But they're, they're, what they're asking for is we need people from the creative side. We need people who are, who are creative in here, not just, uh, not just uh, scientists that, you know, and not just the normal people, but uh, that, uh, that investors build teams around. So um, I've had this through my, my decades of work. I've now had this opportunity where other people from very different types of fields come to me to ask me to join in a conversation. And that this conversation about discovering new ways of looking at things, you only have to come from a household where there's no safety, where there's the, the basic need is just safety. So I'm working, I've worked with a foundation uh, founded by Dan Wyden and Wyden Kennedy that has devoted you know, uh, its entire time about helping those kinds of kids. There, there's so much in this area and things that are, you know, I, again, I come from a really humble background. So it is easy for me to see I mean, I, I see, I was there. <laughs> I was there. I mean, I talk about this as if it's a joke, but it's true. What was my dream as a kid? I wished I could have, my family could have a sofa because I turned on TV and every American family on the sitcoms and everything had a big sofa. They would, the family would, all in the fam, everyone would be sitting in the living room. They had a living room. I didn't even have that. David, I didn't, I didn't live in a house until I was 14. I lived in the laundry until I was 14. So that stuff humbles you and makes you respectful of other people. Does that understanding of your life carry over to what you're doing with Uniglow right now? Because your mission is to create the highest quality of experiences for the greatest number of people on earth. Yeah. Um, That talk about a, you know, a bold mission. That's, that's as bold as you can get. How did you, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, it's something because people would say, I don't get what you do, John. What is this president crap that you're doing? You know, creative director. I kind of got that, you know, but an experience. And and quite frankly, you and I share in this because food is a necessity of life and clothing is a necessity of life. There's a huge upcoming of a, a new middle class in the world that wants the same things that you and I have. They want the same quality. But can they afford it? And so I think our job is to make things to bring high quality to the greatest number of people. That's the goal. And that is deeply embedded in the Japanese DNA of our company. I very much am attracted to that idea in general. I think the genesis of what I did with Momofuku was when you aren't making a lot of money and you do spend money on something and you get ripped off. That's the, one of the worst feelings in the world. It really is. Yeah. And it's a feeling that I think every single person in this world will experience at one point or some one, one time or one purchase. Everybody feels that way. It's crappy. Like, how do you make sure that more often than not, because you never be perfect, you are going to make no. mistakes. No, no. How do you take that bet? How do you see that? Because you're right, Japan, if you haven't been to Japan, or it's a lot more of an Asian sensibility, but I see it much more in Japan, is value is in everything. Yes. You know, they're, 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 you, it's hard to describe to someone in America that has never been, that if you say something is cheap here, you think it's crappy. If you say something is cheap in Japan, nobody there thinks it's poorly made or it's bad. Mm. There's this difference in understanding that shaped my idea of food, living in Japan, teaching English, then cooking, living in Korea, living in China. That was my big, oh my God moment. I'm eating. And I remember being in hutongs in Beijing, spending 75 cents a day, eating the best meals of my life. (laughs) Nobody in America could say you could do that or wanted to do that. And if you said, if you like to eat food and you enjoyed food, you were considered a snob. Nobody felt that way in Asia. It was something that everybody knew that everybody wanted. So right. this is the similar sort of sensibility. It's, it's that in you're our trying DNA. It's, a, we're, it's one of the ways, you know, we did not, meaning Uniqlo, meaning Japan, did not invent casual clothing. I mean, come on, that's an American invention, casual, casual clothing. But we can improve it. And that has been the history of Japan and taking things and keep improving it. 
there's a, and I don't mean so much to be talking about my job. I'm not here to promote, uh, you know, my wares. No, 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 please, please. This but, is the best way to describe it. But the term that we made, that we wrote a few years ago, and think about this, simple made better. Simple made better. It means there is no finish line. Simplicity is our starting point, not our end point. So some brands might make something and they go, oh, this is simple and simplicity at its best. Keep it just like that. Never change it. I get that. We understand that. We don't want to destroy the essence of something that has been almost perfected, but we can keep incrementally make it better. And as you know, that comes from Japanese corporations, Kaizen, the constant improvement. So this is a true story. My very, very first, this is when Uniqlo uh, first started. And by the way, when I started with Uniqlo, by the way, they had no stores in Tokyo. I was flying two and a half hours south of Tokyo to meet with Mr. Yanai at that time. No stores in Tokyo at that time. So they, 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 I went to a meeting and the, the product guy for sweaters is making a presentation. I'm sitting with Mr. Yanai. And he says, and what's better about this sweater this season? He said, well, Mr. Yanai, we are using 40% more silk in the thread that sews the label on the back of the shirt. That means it will probably scratch your neck 40% less when you're wearing that shirt. The improvements that we make on things are sometimes invisible even. So the improvements are constant. You're not, not every season, but you're constantly, you're, that's your job is to keep improving it without destroying the essence of it. So if you look at certain things, over time, you can measure the improvement, but it's not always obvious to you. Everything you just explained to me was basically word for word what Murata-san of Kikunoi explained to me many years ago. He said, all you Americans are such in a rush to improve, to create, but you guys haven't been around that long. You don't mm -hmm. see that what we're doing is evolution, is mm -hmm. creativity, but it just happens mm -hmm. over hundreds of years. It's a completely different mindset. One of my great thrills is that when I can have the time, and I'm going to be doing this again soon, I uh, have my friends introduce me to these masters in Kyoto, these real masters of certain crafts. And I went to one place that is uh, 250, everything in Tokyo is 250 years old. You know, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. So this 250-year-old textile uh, company, family-owned, and the founder's uh, family was greeted me and so forth. And uh, showing me uh, all of the, of the samples of textiles and fabrics that they've been making for the temples for 200 years. And then he took me on a tour and there was this guy dyeing fabric in a beautiful golden yellow in a bucket. And he said, oh, this gentleman's been with the family a long time, uh, but he has the toughest job. He has, he's, he's under a lot of pressure because this job has a deadline coming up. And I go, oh, really? He's, really? So when's the deadline? He says, oh, it's in 12 years. The deadline to make that fabric perfect is coming in 12 years and he's sweating bullets. Different world, you know? Again, there are restaurants in Kyoto that are over 400 years old, not many. And it's not like the menu has changed that much in 400 years. Right, right. So it, it just is a marvel. And I'm, I feel fortunate to understand that. Yeah. I hope that I'm more like that. But, you know, this is different cultures, which is, again, why I love to travel so much. And I, I appreciate that you love all that, but then knowing something about your background, you know, and there's a, there's a certain urbanness to you, a certain streetness to you that you can take these ideas and flip them, you know, and maybe bring them to a bigger, bigger audience. Not maybe, you have. Bring them to a bigger audience and bring that education without educating them. You know, the great thing that the Gap did, what Mickey Drexler did in the 80s, was he raised the standard of style was great for Americans without ever lecturing anyone. It just gradually improved, improved, improved. So I, th I think that's something that can happen in food and has, has happened in food. Well, um, I'm wondering what's the next thing besides working on nonprofits and stuff like this. Your, mm -hmm, your mm -hmm. career has done so many things. Is there something, I'm still going, some, David. is there some industry that you haven't entered yet, but you always wish that you worked with? If I had my resume, I could push it over the screen. I would say food. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we, no don't, I, we don't want you. We don't need you. You're too, you're too good at your job. You stay. <laughs> so, um, yes, of course, I'm thinking of that. Of course, I'm thinking of that. I, I, I'm not going to be on a horse riding into any sunset. You know, uh, uh, you know, I'll go down with the gun swinging somehow. You know, uh, 
I, what it is, I'm searching. To be honest with you, I'm searching. And I, this is my great joy in life because I get to travel and meet so many different people. And my, my greatest joy is to meet people who inspire me. And they can be a kid, a professor, or whatever. I spend a lot of time being inspired. And I'm, I'm in a fortunate position uh, to, to do that. So I'm trying to figure out what that next step is. Uh, and, and yeah, and quite honestly, one of the things that intrigued me about talking to you here because uh, I've only met you once or twice in person, you know, is really to get your take on this because I see you that, you know, so I'm interested in where you're going because right. you're out of the kitchen. Well, you know, it's, I have a lot of thoughts on food and restaurants and where it's going, but in terms of media for us, and we're taking a big bet on this, and I, I don't know when we'll be able to announce certain things without getting in trouble because things are still being finalized. My gut tells me that food media, at least media surrounding food, because food media can be a lot of different things, but anything that involves culture around food, that's the way I look at it, right? It's culture yeah. that is edible. Yeah, yeah. It's just so vast. That's why it's so hard to get everyone on the same page, right? Um, just think about Nike. One of the, all the stuff we did with Nike SB, people forget that the skateboarders of this world that travel the world, they're the best foodies. Yeah. They yeah. know where to eat. They just yeah. know where to eat all over the world. So when I talk about food media, how do you talk about these stories? How do you tell these stories? How do you let the expertise out there coming from voices that may not be seen as the editor of a food magazine or things like that. So that's one thing I've always wondered, right? Uh, is how do you get diversity? Diversity, not just in skin color, but diversity in the kinds of things people consume in food. It just isn't the same. It's never been the same, but it's always been, the platforms have always been the same. Anyway, but I think- but It's through your life, through your lens. Your lens is what's making it special. That little thing that you just said, skaters have the best, uh, know the best information about where to eat. That's a revelation that I'm, probably 99% of people don't know. I'm not a skater, but I'm friends with a lot of skateboarders. And you know what? They love eating. They mm. really appreciate great food. And here's the funny thing. They appreciate a taco as much as a $500 tasting menu. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's again, you, you think about that disconnect. You know, and again, I, I I love things in culture that shock me. I remember yeah. doing a, an event with Nike, and it was a, a go skate day. We were in New York, and I was expecting a bunch of white kids. They were the minority. It was Hispanic and mostly African American skaters. Mm -hmm. And I said, "Thank God, I'm mm -hmm. doing this," mm -hmm. because it just blew my mind away. Because I didn't know how deep skateboard culture went. Because I only was consuming it from one angle of how it's been portrayed in media. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that was wonderful. So it allowed me to open up my eyes and I've got to become friends with more people in that universe. And what a great zeitgeist about what is going to happen in, in culture, not just in food or skateboarding, fashion, uh, dance, parties. They throw the best parties. I remember, mm -hmm. I can't remember who, they were like, hey, we did a huge party. We made a lot of money on it but we only did it through text messages. Mm. This was like six years ago. Mm -hmm. They were just always ahead. So I look at skateboard culture in a way that maybe some people won't. I look at fashion in a lot of ways right. because fashion has always been maybe 15 years ahead of the rest of culture, particularly food culture. Now, so many things in culture are the same. So for me, I'm not looking at the things that I used to look at. I'm now looking at, quite frankly, what I find online and YouTube because in terms of media, talking about Korea, I don't understand why things get sometimes 25, 50 million views. And it's- Or, 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 or 1 billion or views. Or 1 billion views. <laughs> right. Because my initial reaction, again, how I like to keep my ear to the ground and collect data is I always have to overcome my own bias and stupidity and stubbornness. So if someone talks about mukbang, that's my initial reaction is that's stupid. Why would anybody want to watch somebody eating? Okay, so I eventually come around and force myself to challenge my own bias or my own sort of notion of whatever I understood before, a misunderstanding of it. So the further I go down this rabbit hole of mukbang, it leads me to this whole world of this very subgenre of camping, Korean camping, where they 
camp out of their cars, but they make delicious food. It's so weird, but people love it. Not only is it soothing, but it, I'm trying to understand why people like it now. And the only reason I'm looking at this right now from a media perspective is I never wanted to even do anything mukbang oriented. So to, that's how I operate. And I think there's my, my whole body is telling me, at least on media, and I don't mind telling the secrets or what I'm thinking about this because it's still going to be hard to execute is things are going to go to a place where it's uh, unvarnished, raw, less edited. I think you're seeing that with a lot of the video content that is being produced in the world today. I think TikTok has shown you that if you make super polished videos, it doesn't resonate with a younger audience. They'd rather it be imperfect. They'd rather mm -hmm. it be honest. Mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe that's one data point that's telling me that in a world where everything seems to be airbrushed or perfect or just manipulated to a point where it's selling the idea of perfect and perfection. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. a surprise that our show on Netflix was called Ugly Delicious. I think people want to know how to cook like a regular person with real, which is in a lot of ways what Uniglow is. Just it's okay to use the microwave. It's okay to, to use ramen, instant ramen in a campsite, but you're going to put it with fresh abalone. I love that idea. Fresh abalone with instant ramen, that's art as far as I'm concerned, less about even delicious. You know, a merger of high and low that's rarely been seen or understood. So I am completely infatuated with where that is going. What we are trying to do with our own media is to be in every facet of that. And I think it's mm. cooking without a net. Mm -hmm. If you think about all the cooking shows you've ever watched, let's just think about bread. Nobody in the history of the world has ever seen bread made from start to finish on TV. Mm. It's never happened. You know what I mean? It's always, they cut out the, the two hours of fermentation. I want to know yeah. what happens to that person making the bread in between those two hours. That to me no. is more interesting. Now, my sons are addicted to Japanese television because they have these very uh, seemingly unassuming shows where someone every day walks down a different street or someone cooks breakfast every morning. And that's it. It's just the same person cooking breakfast every morning or different people. It's just so seemingly mundane, but it's so sophisticated because the, de the details, the things that are unspoken or things that are just there, um, in Japanese culture, the idea of every day is a very, has deep meaning, very deep. It's not just like every day, every, it's every day is a zenness to it. That's a very deep, it's like almost a religion in many ways. Um, and so does everyone. So, so, so the, the idea that, uh, everyone has value, that everyone has a meaning, uh, is a very strong pull and really foundation. And I just want to comment one thing because we're talking about a business in a way. The idea of omotenashi, on the surface, it's described as hospitality. So when you think in Western terms, oh, it's about omotenashi, it's about good service at a restaurant or a good service at a hotel. It's much deeper than that. It's about things that you don't see. It's about service that you expect without ever having to expect it. Uh, it's really, really deep, and it's really fascinating. Man, I, I clearly could talk to you um, for a couple more hours, but I, <laughs> we'll have to well, have I'll you back on. come down and have dinner at your restaurant again. I'd love that, and and if you visit us in LA, or when I get back in New York, or maybe we'll we'll hit up Tokyo together. I'd like that yeah. very much. Come to Portland. Come I to will. Portland. I will because uh, there's a huge camping movement there. Food, huge. What do you mean? What 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 is this camping movement in food? Uh, my sons are all, all, they're all out on weekends cooking food, camping, going out to camping and, and cooking in, in, in groups. It's, uh, it's so funny when you start connecting the dots. And I feel just not even knowing your sons, I, there's a lot of conversations internally about this, right? A TV show where you're making food in nature, but with the best ingredients. I think people would want to watch that. Yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. And, it's, and yeah, Absolutely. Well, David, you, you just tell me when, you know, I'll, I'll come down to L.A. anytime, you know, uh, it's, it's a, you know, me taking a plane is like taking the Crosstown bus. You know, so. <laughs> I appreciate it, John. Thanks for coming. Thank on. you. Thank you, sir. Well, that was John. Uh, we, we will have to have him back on because 
He has a whole career as a restaurateur too. He has a career as a journalist. There's so many facets of his life that we barely got into. But, you know, trying to keep these podcasts to about an hour so, you know, people actually listen to them. Um, and I want to I wanna understand more of his thoughts about culture. I mean, this, is, this guy is the GOAT. He really is. So rarely do you get to meet somebody and talk to somebody that has these perspectives. And I'm going to try to find those 10 tips he talked about, the 10 tips of John Jay. Um, give us five stars. How do you rate this? Thank you so much, everybody. 